I've realized that one of the secrets for me, this is my journey, everybody's got a different one, but one of the secrets for me was I had to first do what I hate in order to one day get to do what I love. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Our guest today is a 20-year veteran of the real estate industry and currently serves as a founder and CEO of the BAM Companies, which is BAM Capital, BAM Management, and BAM Construction. He's a good friend of mine who I just look up to greatly. His name is Ivan Barrett. Since 2015, he has raised over $250 million in equity, acquired well over 5,900 units, and grown the BAM companies to best-in-class, four-time Inc. 5,000 private equity and management firms. So Ivan focuses his time on equity finance acquisitions and company strategy. Today, we are going to talk about how he started as a management company in his bedroom, and then he has grown to 6,000 units. You're going to hear that today, amongst many other things, over the next few days with Ivan. I want to remind you to please like and subscribe to the show. If you'll leave us a written rating and review on iTunes and send us a screenshot to info at lifebridgecapital.com, I'll send you one of my recommended books for free. Ivan, great to see you again. I know you were a guest on the show well, probably two years ago, a few times even then. And you and I got to catch up at a conference just recently in a group that we're both in. And so just honored to have you back on the show and see your success and get to dive into that and allow the listeners to learn from you today. Welcome. Thanks, Whitney. Excited to be here, brother. Well, let's look at your companies, BAM, globally, and, you know, maybe give the listeners a little bit about what BAM is, you know, your companies and what you all do in real estate for those that don't know you. And then I want the listeners to know we're doing a series with I. We're going to do a few days with him where we're going to dive into some more topics that I know if you're, no matter if you're passive or active in this business, they're going to want to hear these conversations. So get us started. Tell us about BAM companies, maybe how, you know, how did they start? And we'll dive a little deeper. Oh, that sounds perfect. So I'll start with sort of where we are today, just for a little bit of a reference point and maybe some credibility with the audience. But today, the BAM companies, we're approaching about 140 full-time employees across management, construction, and then, of course, on the capital side, we do all that in-house. So we're, we're vertically integrated. We're approaching almost a billion in transactions managing right now over 4,000 units. We've transacted well over 6,000. So we've bought and we've sold some in the past few years. That represents, I think, close to 400 million of invested equity. We've returned, as of our most recent exit, I want to say about 180 million so far in total distributions to our investor list, which is now, oh, roughly 1,000 individuals and families that invest alongside us. We don't go to big institutions. We democratize real estate for the individual investor. And that all started in 2010. I'd been in real estate for several years already, but that really started in 2010 when I decided to start a property management company in my spare bedroom doing it all myself. Wow. Started by doing your own property management company. A few duplexes under my belt and started that property management company. That was my path to scale something. Wow. Why property management at that time? I know you mentioned a few duplexes, but what was the thought process there going into management specifically? 
I love that question. It's a great question. And I get it a lot, right? Like, why the heck would you want to start in property management dealing with the tenants and toilets? If you're new to the business out there, we don't call them tenants anymore. We call them residents. But tenants and toilets has got a better ring to it. So, you know, we're coming out of 2008. I had been in real estate for years. And because of the market, I found myself like $250,000 in debt, which in my late 20s seemed like a giant hole, negative cash flow. Not really sure what I wanted to do. Trying to convince my wife at the time, my girlfriend, trying to convince her I'm a good catch and just lost. I had been privy to work for a great mentor. I'd worked on some really big, cool, you know, big ego development deals, but that all came crashing down in six, seven, eight. And I really had to soul search a lot and started reading books again. Back then I was reading Robert Kiyosaki. I was reading everything that Ken McElroy put out. He wrote a book, you know, the ABCs of property management. I was reading or listening to Dave Lindahl's Apartment House Riches. It's like till those CDs broke. Because I knew I wanted to do these big apartment deals, but all of a sudden, you know, years have gone by and I've, I've done nothing. And this saying sort of crept back into my head, something my dad would always say, the journey of 10,000 miles starts with the first step. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, I should replace that with units. The journey of 10,000 units starts with the next one, right? I had a duplex at the time. And so I started doing two things to scale the company. I first... And I'm going to talk about this at Joe Fairless's conference. And I've been working on a whole speech around how to grow a company, a real business. But I've realized that one of the secrets for me, this is my journey. Everybody's got a different one. But one of the secrets for me was I had to first do what I hate in order to one day get to do what I love. And so through some discussions with some valued friends, my brother gets a lot of credit here. He's a year younger than me, 10 times smarter, a little bit taller but not quite as good looking. He's maybe 1% less good looking than me and my father and some other close people. And I quickly realized that, yes, I would hate doing the toilets and the tenants and leasing and figuring out maintenance and collecting rents and all these things that a solopreneur would do, but it would allow me to scale much faster than the other thing I was doing, which was buying small multifamilies with hard money and doing the Burr method before they even called it Burr, right? buy, renovate, rent, refinance, and repeat. And I would look for the crappiest deals I could find in an area that I knew was coming up. The market was rising, right? So I I would find these really distressed sellers or distressed deals, come in, buy them for pennies on the dollar, use hard money to renovate them, and to capitalize my interest, which is a fancy way of saying make my interest payments while I perfected my value-add strategy. But I couldn't do that fast enough. I would do a deal like that and say it's a three unit. I'll never forget buying that three unit. And once I got it rented up, while I was still paying the hard money, I think my cash flow was maybe $300 a month, call it $100 per door. After I refinanced it, you know, my cash flow jumped up quite a bit to maybe six, seven, eight hundred dollars a month in the beginning there on three units. But it took me a long time to find one of those deals, Whitney, and it took a lot of work. By getting small management contracts, people that couldn't sell the house back in those days, out-of-state investors, which, spoiler alert, turned into some of my very first apartment investors when I started syndicating my own deals. By offering management services to them and working really hard, I could scale you know, a $100 contract here, a $200 contract there, a $400 
management contract, I could scale much faster. And every month that money would come in. And that started building enough monthly revenue to where I could think about hiring people and reinvesting in the business and getting better systems and growing. And I had this idea that if I could figure that out on the small stuff first, that that would aid me in the future when I started doing bigger deals. And so that's really how I stair-stepped into my business was small deals for myself and other people and start doing more of my own stuff. Where today, well, several years ago, we started firing those small-time management clients in order of the ones we liked the least. They were asked to find new management the first, right? And today, we've got such a great management team and a management culture and a, a machine that performs so well. We only deploy those resources on assets where the, the general partner or the sponsor or the one leading the charge where we've got an invested interest in the upside as well. No longer do we do third-party management, as they call it. But that was my bridge to building a great company. So interesting. I was going to ask you, as you were talking about operating or starting your own management company was a way to help you to scale because you couldn't do it fast enough by buying the single families or the, you know doing the Burr method, those things. And so ultimately, it was your education, right? I mean, in operating a business, it sounds like, but you saw a way that you could, something you could scale probably without having to find the next down payment or even looking for enough deals, you can have the deals almost come to you in that sense by having another means to going to that seller or that owner. Is that accurate? Exactly. I wanted to find income streams or revenue streams that would help me grow the business itself. And all I had to do was win over a client, right? Somebody out of town or somebody that doesn't want to deal with the management. I could win them over rather quickly, take over their assets for them, collect leasing fees and management fees. And if you do well by your clients, whether you're running their apartment investments or you're running their management, they tend to stick around and stay with you. Speak to some of the next things, like big steps that started to happen for you. Or were you doing single family homes then for small multis for you know a number of years then? Or where did it turn to where, okay, we can really scale this or we can even start syndicating. What led up to really the belief that you can scale like that due to large apartment communities? Yeah, it reminds me of, of learning this idea or being introduced to this idea back then that the real key is, is action, no matter how small the step is, but daily. And finding these ways to have daily action in the right direction. Learned that, you know, climbing mountains as a teenager, you don't look at the summit for very long. You may look at it every now and then, but once you know you're on the right mountain, it's all about putting one foot in front of the other. So I I never did single family homes. I would manage them, but I never bought any. I would only, for me, it had to be at least two units. So I bought several more duplexes. Some were hard money. A guy that I still try to talk to as much as I can. I think he's up to 12 or 14,000 units. He seller financed a few small multifamilies to me because he was getting too busy to deal with the small stuff. And so he sold those to me, made me a great seller finance deal. Then my first technical apartment deal was six units. I bought a six unit deal, right? Five or more. I bought that off the bank. It was half occupied, a total mess. Bought that, got it all fixed up and running. Learned a lot of lessons on that deal. Then my next, what I would call syndication light, would be I bought a 35-unit apartment project. And that I had just one investor 
He put up, I want to say, 150000 I put in my real estate commission, and I convinced the seller to give me a note, a carryback note for 10%. And that's, that's how we closed the deal. I got my you-know-what handed to me on that project on several occasions. You know, I thought I was buying a C property. It turned out it was a D. Couldn't raise rents. Dealt with bed bugs, drugs, homeless people sleeping in the hallways, sewer line collapses, more bed bugs, more drugs. Just everything that could have gone wrong went wrong on that 35-unit deal. And as you said earlier, it's all about the education. I just some days had to repeat it to myself over and over again. I'm paying tuition. I'm paying tuition. I'm learning. We ultimately sold that asset a few years later and we made money. I think we made about a 9% IRR, which at the time we were we were happy to to make a return on that on that deal as rough as it was. While I was managing that, I bought another 30 unit, which was a full redevelopment deal, paid a lot of tuition on that one too. Then I said I'd never do another small deal again, but I found 15 units that was too good to pass up. And so each one of those first few deals, the 35, the 30, and the 15, those were all with one investor and basically an operating agreement. From there, I bought 60 units. And that was my first syndication where we had a PPM and we had multiple investors that were true limited members of that LLC or limited partners, as we like to affectionately call them. And yeah, several of those investors were management clients, you know, that are still with me and still invest with me today. They've since sold all their little dinky deals and invest in my apartment projects. And of course, they've made referrals over the years to more investors. And that was a a great source of capital early on. I don't don't know if I've gone too far off your your question there. I was even, I I wanted to ask even where you raised some of the money from and how you started meeting some of those investors. And that's interesting. Oh, yeah. Many of them were previous clients that used used to manage for. Yeah, millions and millions of dollars have come out of those clients that I managed for. It was a great way to to showcase, hey, you know, we're doing a good job on this. You built trust, or these right? You built relationships, and yeah. And I'll never forget when I had the the next deal after that was 110 units, and it was going to be HUD financed because I was still, you know, ultra scared of 2008 and HUD. You could lock in your interest rate for 35 years, super low, lots of complexity in dealing with the HUD loan. And I had to raise a million, maybe a million one in outside money to get that deal done. And I remember that having raised that first million, I was so stressed and it was the holiday season and I had to close this thing before the end of the year. And I was so stressed, Whitney, that I was getting like a rash, like around my eyes, like an irritation, just sleepless nights and just the stress of of raising that, that first big check. But we got it done. We closed on that deal and got even more education and more learning having <laughs> on-site employees at a property, you know, five, six days a week. And from there, kept going. Incredible. I, I want to ask you, you know, you obviously a major stressful moment there to raise the first million. And yeah. I even back up to that 30-unit deal. You, I mean, you talked and talked about how horrible this experience was. I almost, I almost feel like most of us have had like it almost just had to happen that way. Like early on, like let's get a horrible deal under your belt. You know, I mean, I have a similar 
scenario with the two triplexes we purchased years ago. I mean, it was just like, I say the apartments, you know, that term, and my wife still just like cringes, <laughs> you know, just like, ah, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. that time, you know, it just like takes you back to that stressful time. But I wanted to ask you, during that horrible experience, all the bed bugs, all the homeless people sleeping, you know, in there, you're having to deal with all that. Were you married yeah. then? Yes, but this time I'm married, yeah. How yeah, did you all handle that and, together? Uh, probably I mean, one or, sorry, go ahead. No, that was it. I just wonder, you know, her input into this and how you all managed that. <laughs> was she so excited about this, this property management business and, you know, we're buying real estate and how did you all navigate that together? By that time, she was pretty hands-off. She was still working and she was definitely the breadwinner. You know, most of my capital is going, you know, first to pay off all that debt that, yeah. I, that I racked up. And then I was just reinvesting in the business and trying to grow that. So, you know, I was lucky to have a great partner who kept the lights on. But those early years were really tough. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of things that I learned the hard way going through that. I'll never forget qualifying for Entrepreneurs Organization, which was my first real entree into a mastermind sort of environment where you're you're trying to grow a business with other entrepreneurs in, in different industries, right? But you're trying to learn from each other. And I remember you had to have a million in revenue to qualify to get in there. And I, you know, at the time I'm making that, but like, I don't know what, I don't know how I'm going to go grow from here. I'm working harder than I've ever worked. I was 50 pounds heavier than I am today. And I couldn't work any harder. And at the same time, you know, my marriage is, I would say, mediocre. And I'm not feeling like the, the most present dad. I've got little kids popping out. I think we had maybe two, you know, now we're at three. And so, you know, I talk about this a lot with young entrepreneurs is got what gets me here in a lot of cases won't get me to where I want to go next. And I've got to continually reinvent myself and change my focus and adapt if I want to scale a business, be happy and have what I call these, you know, good grades in these other areas of my report card faith, family, health, fun, business at the bottom, not by accident. Yeah, that's incredible. I wondered that myself and people always ask too, just to, you know, starting the business is not a small feat. And without, man, that support at home, I would have never well, made it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got to win over your wife. My first hard money burr threeplex I did that I mentioned earlier, the story gets better every time I tell it. But I think there were like 25 slides in my PowerPoint trying to explain to her what I was looking to do. And I also drug her to a real estate conference so that she could hear some of these ideas from somebody else. Because sometimes her ears open up a little bit better when it's not me doing sure. doing all the talking. Wow. Well, if we had to look back and you had to think about all this growth, everything that's happened, there's so many other things we could dive into there. But what would you do different knowing what you know now? I'm a huge proponent of that forum or that mastermind setting I mentioned here a moment ago. I'm a huge proponent of having a coach in my life in any area that I want to improve. So I'm in a few different mastermind groups. The one that we're in, I cut out a group that I've been in for a couple of years to join this this forum that you and I are in. Because you can't do it all, right? right? And still be a good husband and a good dad and everything else. So I try to, on at least a yearly cadence, sometimes less than that, look at what do I need to sacrifice 
right? What is still on my plate that I shouldn't be doing anymore? Who are the people in my life that maybe I need to get some distance between? What are the areas that I've outgrown that, you know, I may have like that group I left um, some great friends in that group that I hope to remain friends with, but I've got to race my race. And in order to grow, I've got to exit that and go find a new group where I can be a little fish again and, and be out of my comfort zone. So groups, coaching is big. Best coaches I've ever found, Whitney, have no contract. They're not cheap, but hey, fire me if I'm not adding value. Until then, let's let's see what we can do together. So I've got a coach in several areas of my life, including spiritual and family and, and parenting, as well as business and executive coaching, both both for me and the, the leaders in my organization that we need to develop in order to get where we're going. A couple of the other concepts that one of my favorite ones that I heard recently on I forget the guy's channel, but it's called Motiversity. And it's more like guys lifting weights and like David Goggins kind of audible stuff, you know, get you going in the morning. But one thing that he says on that channel is if your why doesn't make you cry, it ain't a strong enough why. That for me is really an anchor or a catalyst that helps put a little another log on the fire to take those steps in faith, you know, to start that business, to get back up when I get hit in the mouth, especially early on. It's why, you know, the, the why I'm doing this. It's not just for the money in the bank. It's for, it's more for the abundant life full of adventure that I want to have with my wife and kids, the freedom I want to enjoy, the impact I want to make on my community, both while I'm here and long after I'm gone. You know, those types of reasons for doing things are what's going to help drive me when I don't want to get up and do what I'm supposed to do. And I think a lot of people lose sight of that and don't realize that, hey, athletes, entrepreneurs, people that are achieving, most days when we get up, we don't feel like going out and achieving, right? Right. We feel that call to lay in bed or watch TV or take it easy. It's that deeper why that builds that momentum that keeps us striving to be better. No doubt about it. I couldn't agree more. There's often days you don't feel like getting back out of the bed and going back to the office or nights you feel like staying late. And it is something like that that's bigger than you that's going to keep you keep you going. A couple a couple things that really helped that I, I don't have to go back in time and, and tell late 20s Ivan. He already figured a couple things out. It comes from the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, begin with the end in mind. But I'm, I'm going to shift it a little bit. It's more about If I'm a solopreneur, right, what would a small business do in this situation? If I'm a small business, what would a medium-sized business? If I'm a big business, what would a a bigger business? We still do this in my company today. But back then it was, okay, do I hire this person to do this thing? Or do I take the company this direction? And I put it in the perspective of where I want the company to be two, three, four years down the road and say, okay, what would that company do today? it helps enlighten the decision that should be made, if that makes sense. For sure. So constantly thinking like, what would a big company do? And telling my team, even when it was five of us, hey, we're not a small business, guys. We're a big freaking company that just today happens to be small. What do we do in that case as a big company? So we've tried to keep that front and center over the years. And that's really helped us grow quickly but also in a way to where things don't fall apart. Speak to how it helps you not to fall apart. 
Well, a lot of it comes around hiring. Myself and my team are always looking at what's the org chart of the future, right? Yeah. Okay, here's where we want to go. Who do we need to hire to get there? Let's hire them now. Even though it may temporarily impact profitability, who are the folks that we need to find to get in this bus we're on and get them in the right seat to help us execute on that? So we could do what we do today and not have a chief investment officer. But five months ago, I hired a CIO. And I'm putting him in charge of developing a vision for how we want to be one of the best companies to invest with on the planet. Do I need him today to execute and stay at the level of Matt? Absolutely not. But I'm definitely going to need him tomorrow or a year from now or two years from now. So I'm going to hire him. I'm going to make the investment now and step out in faith that that investment is going to return. So our investors probably think that our best assets are the apartment communities that we manage and operate and improve on their behalf. And that's not the case. My strongest, my best assets are the people that work alongside me that have bought into our vision. No doubt about it. I love that. I'm so thankful you brought that up. We just recently completed an org chart, the best that we can. We look like at 5,000 units. That's so interesting. And it's helpful. I love it, dude. Your aspirational org chart is important. Yeah, that's so neat to hear you say that as well and know where you're at today. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end this segment because there's so many other things that I want to dive into with Ivan and and just pull out some of his expertise from his powerhouse of experience. And so, man, from property management company in your bedroom to, man, you know, 5,900 units or, you know, you've acquired almost 6,000 units. It's just an incredible story, Ivan. Congratulations to your success. I want the listeners to know we're going to have a you know at least two more days with Ivan. Uh, we'll see uh, how much we can get done and dive into. Ivan, tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you. Thank you for those kind words, Whitney. It's it's a lot of fun watching. I'm pretty easy to find. BAM Capital is pretty easy to find. You Google BAM Capital, Google Ivan Barrett. I think it's on here. Yeah, B-A-R-R-A-T-T. A little bit of a unique spelling there. I should be pretty easy to find. 317-762-2625. 317-762-2625. I think I said the same number twice. <laughs> and of course, the band companies is our main parent company. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 